I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature episode. Later on in the program, we'll be speaking with Professor Nikolai Petro about the tensions between the United States and Russia over Ukraine and NATO. But first up, we welcome the esteemed journalist, the Washington, D.C. editor, for Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn, to discuss the military-industrial complex and his new book, The Spoils of War, Profit, Power, and the American War Machine. But before we get to that, a word from one of our sponsors, namely Joseph Matheny, the transmedia storyteller who helped invent alternate reality games. Joseph has a new audio drama, which I think you'll find to be a bit of a mind-bender. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a forest spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service.
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for quite some time, Andrew Coburn, author of the relatively new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Good to be with you. So, Andrew, I guess the first question I wanted to start with, this book, Spoils of War, is interesting because one of the things you're tackling with it is there's this notion that you know, the American war machine is about foreign policy and uh, uh, defense, uh, or, you know, on the left, uh, it, it'll be accused of being about imperialism. But really, you're saying in this book, the bottom line is ultimately keeping the money flowing. Exactly. Um, you know, it's something that it frustrates me that people don't realize that people, you know, on, as you say, I mean, you're quite right. On the left and on the right, people think, you know, by the by the notion that this is actually about defense, about strategy, foreign policy, you know, national aims, good or bad, U.S. imperialism. And, uh, you know, as I argue throughout the book, these are just that's just these that's just the cover. Um, you know, there's a story I tell in the book, a little tiny anecdote, but I feel it's sort of points to the whole thing, which is in um, in 2018, uh, Donald Trump was persuaded to authorize a, a mini surge in Afghanistan. Um, and I have a, a source, a story I, I tell is um, there was a meeting of four-star generals in the Pentagon, a group of four stars, who were discussing this initiative. And they said, they were all agreed that this was militarily completely pointless. It would make no difference to the whatever went on in Afghanistan. Uh, but, quote, it will do us good at budget time, unquote. And I thought, you know, that's, to me, that's, that, you know, that is what it's all about. I mean, I also quote um, Colonel John Boyd, who was, you know, a great military thinker, a uh, very significant figure, and influenced a lot of people in, in and outside the military, uh, who knew the Pentagon machine very well. And he said, people say the Pentagon doesn't have a strategy. That's not true. It does have a strategy. It's keep the money flow. Um, and that is what it's all about. You can't really understand the act actions and ag the activities of our military, of our military machine. And I mean, that's the coal, you know, the military itself, the defense, you know, the arms manufacturers, the contractors, the, uh, the industry, and the Congress, without understanding that point. It's about the money. Um, and, you know, whatever excuses you need to cobble up to, you know, keep the money flow, you know, the need to confront Russia and Ukraine or to, you know, confront the Taliban, confront Saddam Hussein, confront, you know, whoever. Um, but that's really, you can't understand why they do these things and what's going to happen, um, certainly what has happened, without understanding that it's about the money. This puts uh, a really different light then on, you know, our many years in Afghanistan, because a lot of people have said that Afghanistan was a failure. But from what you're saying, in a way, Afghanistan could be seen as a success. It accomplished what it was meant to do, which was to keep that money flow going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people lament that um, 
according to whatever calculation you know is made, you know, the trillion dollars was spent directly on the war. And if you add up all the other costs like <clears throat> the veterans administration costs, the medical, you know, all that, it's you know upwards of two trillion. But someone, you know, people got that trillion dollars. <laughs> that was that's a what a what a success to have an enterprise that yields gross revenues of a trillion dollars with a very healthy profit percentage is um, makes the whole thing worthwhile. I um, mean, I tell a story in the uh, well, I have a chapter in the book which is um, in spoils of war with uh, John Sopko, who I call him the Cassandra of the Afghan War. He was the uh, uh, Special Inspector General appointed by Congress uh, for Afghan reconstruction to sort of monitor not the whole expend military expenditure directly, but the money that was spent on reconstruction uh, in Afghanistan, which was well over $100 billion. And, you know, he continually would put out reports saying, you know, what a racket it was and how the money was being completely wasted and uh, and so forth. But, you know, he was, as I, as he said to me, when I interviewed him, he said, um, you know, no one, no one, this was considered perfectly acceptable. No one was held accountable. No one got fired. No one lost a promotion. No one, he said, he doubted anyone lost a bonus. Um, because it was all proceeding according to plan. You know, the money was being spent. A lot of it never even leaving the US that even bothered to sort of pretend to spend it in Afghanistan. Um, a lot of it extremely corruptly. I mean, he gave an example of, you know, a bunch of a uh, group of transport planes, rust bucket transport planes that have been bought for $500 million through the agency of a former US Air Force general, um, which, you know, sat there, land flew into the airport in Kabul, never left again, couldn't be flown, had trees growing through them when he found them. That was $500 million of your money and mine. Which someone got. Um, so yeah, what a what a fantastic business operation the whole thing was. When we talk about the, the military industrial complex, or I'm increasingly uh, prone to using a, a term my friend Ben Freeman at the Quincy Institute uses, which is the uh, military industrial congressional think tank complex, and maybe even put intelligence in there. I, I think it's interesting because I do think the bottom line ends up being money, but I also think there's a way in which uh, the forces within this complex begin to buy their own propaganda. I think there are very real ideologues out there, um, people like Robert Kagan. Uh, I wanted to get your opinion on that. Well, it's a reasonable point. Yeah, there are ideologues. I mean, or, uh, useful idiots, you could say. Um, I don't think Kagan, unfortunately, I don't think he's an idiot. Um, I say two things. I mean, you know, Kagan's done quite well out of all this, and certainly his wife has, um, uh, <clears throat> Victoria Newland, um, who was, you know, a very important agent of the whole process as uh, now under Secretary of State. Um, but ask yourself this: if he was taking a different view, um, you know, would he would he get anywhere at all? I mean, you don't, you know, these people, ideologues get somewhere get you know gain influence as so long as they're you know <clears throat> in the current i mean you know rolling downstream with the money flow um if they tried to swim upstream i don't you know obviously they wouldn't get very far um uh you know the, the uh people who people who speak out against the uh, against the whole process particularly nowadays um 
you know, would you know, would Noam Chomsky get tenure today? I wonder. Um, probably not. Um, you know, in fact, in fact, you find people who, particularly, you take a position on Israel-Palestine being denied tender, being thrown out. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I think you know, it's, it's the idea that something is being ideologically driven. Um, I mean, in this in this case, you know, from, uh, I think is off the mark. If you look at the, you know, the neoconservatives, um, you know, the sort of nineteen. Well, let me tell you a little story, um, which is um, we hear a lot about the uh, you know the rise of the neoconservatives. It started going back in the nineteen, the first generation, in the nineteen seventies. Is that people like Paul Nitza and and those type of figures? Well, um, Paul Nitza, I, I, the agent was Paul Nitza, who was very much you know a mover and shaker of the military industrial complex, but he put together. He really, in a way, invented the neoconservatives because he realized, you know, it was this problem at that point. You had the, up until that point, which was the the pro-Israel lobby, which was very important, <clears throat> was in no way sort of in harmony with the pro-defense lobby. Um, you know, the Israeli lobby, the liberal Jewish intelligentsia had been opposed to the Vietnam uh, Vietnam War. Which you know Lyndon Johnson used to complain about, um, and it was Nitz's insight and genius. He realized he could put them together and persuade the um, you know the otherwise dovish but supporters of Israel that a dollar for defense was a dollar for Israel, and that worked brilliantly. By 1982, the uh, uh, the head of the ADL, whose name I forget, was saying that. Um, to, do, to criticize the defense budget was anti-Semitic. Um, so, you know, so I'm just, I'm only telling the story as an example of how it's the, you know, it's the really the money, the pursuit of the money um, that really drives the ideology and sort of, you know, you can have an ideology, which is, you know, the, the ideologues believe in fervently, but whether they get anywhere or not depends on how much they subscribe to the, greater issue of how much money we give the defense people. In other words, they're sort of incentivized uh, to have a certain ideology. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to get into uh, the the issue of NATO. You cover NATO in the book, and uh, NATO has been in the news lately. Uh, and I've been telling people, you know, that there are reasons that maybe we should question NATO expansion. I mean, uh, George Kennan, uh, who was a Cold Warrior himself, ended up questioning NATO expansion. I wanted you to talk a little bit about NATO and also how Clinton figures into this whole story. How Clinton figures, yes. Um, you know, essentially, you mentioned Kennan criticizing NATO expansion. When NATO expansion was being bruited in the 1990s, actually, it wasn't just Kennan. A whole bunch of people said, you know, this is an insane idea. Um, and as the Russians said at the time, and as now with the release of a lot of documentation is quite undeniably true, we had promised the Russians, we'd made very clear that if they withdrew from Eastern Europe, we would not expand NATO beyond Germany. I mean, you know, but they did agree, we made it clear, we the US made it clear, and the Russians agreed that, you know, what had been East Germany would be you know, that the Germany would unite and we'd all be in NATO, but, you know, not one inch beyond. 
And that was a promise that was, you know, coolly violated by principally by Bill Clinton, who, and it's again clear, and I, you know, I read about this a lot, write about this a lot in the book, um, for domestic political reasons, you know, the night for the 1996 election, he figured he needed, Shpignyev Brzezinski was very important in pointing this out to him for uh, very self-interested reasons that the, um, you know, the Polish vote in Milwaukee and other ethnic Eastern European communities uh, in other important states for Clinton would very much, you know, be in favor of NATO expansion. So he blithely go, you know, gave the go ahead first for Poland. And, you know, then that was the first tranche was in 1999, then there was more in 2004. And so this completely irresponsible act, which guaranteed Russian hostility, I mean, you know, they didn't, shouldn't have needed to be told, and maybe they didn't, and I think quite clearly they didn't care that this was going to ensure tension and hostility in Europe on the border with Russia for, you know, into the indefinite future, you know, was bound to ensue. And that's, you know, that, so that's what we see being played out now, this imperative. I mean, common sense did, maybe it still flickers on. And I, again, told a story in, in Spoils of War about what happened in 2008 when Georgia, the Georgian leader, Misha Shakashvili, who was a rather excitable sort, um, he was encouraged to think that he could, you know, confront Russia and that NATO and the US would come to his support. Um, Bush, uh, George W. Bush, I have to say, I wouldn't normally speak up for him, but it did dawn on him and people in his, you know, administration, like Stephen Hadley, his uh, National Security Advisor, that this was not a good idea at all. And they tried to tell, they told Shakashvili, don't think we're going to start World War III on your behalf. Um, meanwhile, Dick Cheney, Vice President Cheney, was telling through a back channel, uh, telling Shakashvili to go ahead and they would support him. I mean, there was a, it was a huge cry, internal crisis behind closed doors in the White House over this, um, which everyone's chosen to forget. But I'm saying Bush could realize what a sort of, how dangerous this was. I really hope that Biden and, you know, the people around him today have the same sort of insight or <laughs> common sense to realize the same thing now. I'm not, I'm not sure they have. I think that the sort of war fever in Washington is raging so out of control that they may do something truly irresponsible. I want to come back to that in a moment. But first, you write in the book, one line that really stood out to me was, the U.S. defense complex is best thought of not as an organization, but as a living insatiable creature dedicated only to its own defense and power. And I, I believe elsewhere you've said that you also like describing it almost as a, an amoeba. Why do you right. use that metaphor? Because I mean, what gave me the idea was um, it was some, uh, st an analysis, statistical analysis done of the of the defense history of the U.S. defense budget since 1954, done by my friend uh, uh, Chuck Spinney, who was a Pentagon analyst for many years and uh, is a very acute observer, particularly of the, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, of the of the budget cycle. And he discovered that <clears throat> from 1954, if you chart the defense budgets from the 1954 to today, um, 
it shows a steady, you know, draw, draw a curve <coughs> that it shows that overall the thing has grown by 5%, a rate of 5% a year. I mean, not like it grows it by 5% every year, but, you know, overall, if you line up the budgets, do a bar graph and draw a curve, that's, you, you can see that it's gone, gone, gone up by 5% a year compounded um, since 1950 or since the end of the Korean War. Um, and what's interesting is that whenever it does occasionally dip briefly below that 5% line, and when that happens, there's like a reflexive action. You immediately have something that jacks it up again. Um, late 1950s, Eisenhower, who was strong enough to do this, uh, was cutting the defense budget, cut the rate of increase, didn't cut the actual budget, but cut the rate of increase because he wanted to pay for various other things. Immediately, you have the missile gap, you know, so-called missile gap, where the, it was announced that the Russians had were ahead of us in ICBMs. Um, 1970, you know, mid-1970s, the Vietnam War ends. Again, huge, huge land war, overseas war. We've been supporting a, a very, you know, an ally, even after troops withdraw, very, still very expensive, lots of arms. Uh, not to interrupt you, but I think after uh, the Vietnam War, there, there was probably a lot of hope that there would be, uh, oh, yeah. you know, peace dividends, yeah. Yeah, very good point. I mean, people expect the war's over. Maybe now we'll have peace and some of the rewards that come with it are perfectly, should be a reasonable uh, expectation, but of course not, because in that instance, immediately you had a huge onslaught of propaganda saying that the Russians were ahead of us and they had, you know, they could, and they would survive a nuclear war, they could win a nuclear war. Um, the CIA sped up a special program to, you know, to pr promote all this. Um, and, um, and so the defense budget, you know, started to shoot up again. Uh, 1991, same thing happened, you know, Soviet Union disappears. The excuse for all this, all these years, Soviet Union's gone, people talked openly, the peace dividend is here. They didn't, the defense budget did, was cut, but not for very long. And while something is important to understand, whenever the peace, whenever the, sorry, when the defense budget does get cut, the severe cutback, which doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it does. They immediately they lay down a lot of. Um, they seed the ground. I mean, they uh, the, since there's a huge amount of money goes into research and development to lay the groundwork for weapons production, which is when you know there's been a bit of threat inflation and things are back on track. They have programs ready to go, um, which is what happened in nineteen you know in the early nineties. In a whole bunch of areas. So this is where we're explaining that, you know, I, I, how out of control the whole thing is. We have this creature. Um, I want to go, maybe, amoeba, a virus, maybe, you know, it's just, it's, there's something organic about it that, you know, means, as, I, as you quoted, you know, that it exists to maintain its own uh, food supply and grow. If you could, since you mentioned threat inflation, could you talk a little bit more? about the role threat inflation uh, plays in keeping this sort of machine alive. Well, yeah, it's, you know, feeds into what I just saying that um, whenever, you know, sometimes or most of the time, in fact, you know, the threat that we're, that actually exists, if it even is a threat, you know, is really not, not sufficient to justify, 
you know, the enormous expenditures on, on the defense complex. So it has to be jacked up a bit. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, they have to present, you know, a vastly inflated picture of what the other side is capable of. And this was, you know, ridiculously true throughout the, I guess what we have now have to call the first Cold War. Um, you know, that the Russians, you know, there was the missile gap I was just talking about, that the, uh, you know, the Russians supposedly had more, had more missiles, even though they knew fairly quickly that this was nonsense, that the Russian missile program was in complete disarray. And they, um, I think they had four missiles at the point when they were meant to have many more than we did. Um, the, you know, that they, they knew that because of the U-2 overflights, um, they knew that there was no missile gap or if there was a missile gap, it actually was in our favor. But they didn't tell the rest of us. Um, McNamara, the first time the public was let in on this was uh, well into, not well into, but uh, after, after the 1960 election, which the missile gap had played, a supposed missile gap had played a big role. And Robert McNamara installed in the Pentagon sort of made a slip talking to reporters and mentioned that actually the missile gap was the other way around. Um, but, you know, I, I've written a lot about this over the years, how um, in, 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 in Spoils of War, in the book we're discussing, I uh, talk about hypersonic weapons um, and how the threat of hypersonic, you know, the Russians are ahead of us in hypersonic weapons, who are the, they sound devilishly, devilishly futuristic, you know, they, instead of being ballistic missiles that go up and come down again in a sort of predictable arc, they can maneuver and dart around the upper atmosphere so we can't defend against them. And, um, you know, Putin announced he had this, you know, absolutely winning winner, the avant-garde, this winner hypersonic weapon, which was all breathlessly repeated without any sort of notion, sign of independent critical thinking in the American media and hey presto, we're off the races with a very prosperous hypersonic program of our own. I mean, it was a classic example of threat inflation. Um, anyway, that's, that's you know, threat inflation is an essential lubricant for the system. That actually leads me uh, to something else I wanted to talk about, which is when it comes to uh, say conflicts between uh, the US and another country, you know, obviously the war machine here benefits, but are there also profiteers on, on the other side of the conflict as well? As in, do a lot of different parties benefit uh, from, you know, conflict? Oh, sure. I mean, I think um, it was certainly true in Russia. Um, in fact, I mean, let me tie that into what I was last thing we were talking about, which was the hypersonic missile. Um which was a program, you know, kept alive. It's actually the weapon that Putin was talking about. It's been around since the, at least the 80s as a program. And it was kept going because the, the, the Soviet and then the Russian military industrial complex, um, you know, said, well, this program is employing 10,000 people. Um, you know, that was a clear case that the, and that the, whole just Russian justification for trying to develop this weapon, which doesn't really work, um, was that the American missile defense system would defeat the traditional ICBMs. 
But that's nonsense. That's a case of Russian threat inflation or before that Soviet threat inflation, where they used, you know, the the supposed threat of the American, you know, Star Wars program to justify their own programs. Um, when I quote, I think maybe a couple of times in the book, because I, I like the quote so much from a, a guy, Ivan Selin, who was um, a senior official in the Pentagon in the 1960s and has been around the, so I call it the Washington Mandarin at, ever since. But he used to say in the 60s, he'd say, um, he'd say to people coming to work in his office, he'd say, welcome to the world of strategic analysis, where we program weapons that don't work to meet threats that don't exist. And as you, you know, as you're quite right to ask about this, this is most very vividly true in the case of the American uh, defense system, but it's also, um, you know, it also applies to the Russians, the Chinese, the, you know, a lot of the NATO countries, uh, because, because you have to, these systems need to define a quote threat which may not you know, be in tune with reality, but it, it suits what they want to do anyway, you know, build a hypersonic missile program or you know, um, I don't know, build aircraft carriers or whatever. Um, you know, that suits their own purposes, even though it may have may even be counterproductive in terms of confronting the so-called enemy. So before we close out, I just had one or two more questions. And uh, one of the important points I wanted to get at is, uh, you know, we've talked about how there, there's so much wasted money with all this spending uh, mm-hmm. on the Pentagon, but there's also a human cost. I mean, you talk about uh, Romanian hospitals that had to go without running water uh, and, and also just uh, innocent civilians uh, dying, even servicemen. Uh, so could you talk about the human cost and any stories that particularly stand out to you in regards to the human cost of all this? Well, sure. I mean, what I mean, for instance, I talk about in the book, um, striking, I mean, it's long ago now, but in the first winter of the Korean War, half the US casualties were from frostbite. And one of the reasons for this was the US soldiers and Marines on the ground had very inadequate boots. You know, they were, were not any kind of boot you should be wearing in sub-zero temperatures. It gets very cold in Korea in the winter. Um, and this was brought to my attention by a Korean War veteran, who had been a junior officer at the time, who said that he remembered they would mount raids on enemy trenches to get boots because the communist soldiers, you know, had quite nice padded boots suitable for very freezing temperatures. And he said, how is it? He said, he used to ask, how is it that I'm, uh, you know, a soldier in the, from the richest country in the world and I'm stealing the boots of soldiers from the poorest country in the world? It wasn't that there wasn't enough money to buy, to get proper boots for American soldiers, just they didn't care because the money was all going to buy strategic nuclear bombers, the B-47, they were, they were buying hundreds, if not thousands, Actually, they weren't that strategic. They couldn't reach the Soviet Union. But the point was they enriched the aerospace industry. They were very expensive and kept a lot of people employed and you know, made various corporations a lot of money. And the bootmakers couldn't, couldn't deliver on that and couldn't on anything like the same scale. We had the same in talking about human cost. And I guess I should go on to say the human cost in terms of, you know, um, you know like the... Uh, 
thousands of civilians we've managed to kill, uh, tens of thousands in the recent wars. Or, or even, not to interrupt you, but or even uh, just selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and, and look what it's done to Yemen. Well, yes, exactly. That's a good example. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was thinking also, of, um, well, that's, that's an important example. I'm glad you mentioned it, that, you know, we don't care. We, you know, Biden promised, you know, part of his campaign pledge was to end the war or stop enabling the, uh, the war in, uh, in Yemen. And then he was going to jolly well make the Saudis stop and going to end U.S. support. And nothing of the kind has happened because, you know, the Raytheon Corporation and the Lockheed Corporation and the very quite significant corporations that hire contractors to, that keep the uh, Saudi Air Force running, um, you know, would will it otherwise. Uh, there's too much at stake here. So that's... Uh, that's another part of it. Um, but I was also just important, more subtly, less obvious point, which is the um, because, you know, we like the whole notion of precision bombing, which is a very good rationale for having lots of very expensive, high tech uh, bombers. Um, you know, the human cost involved in that is um, we don't have anything or we if it was left to the military, we wouldn't have anything to protect troops on the ground. I mean, I only bring that up because uh, there's a couple of chapters in the book talking about why, how this thirst for high-tech, expensive weapon weapons associated with precision bombing actually expose our own soldiers. I mean, actually lead have a very significant human cost. It'd take too long now to explain exactly the, why this is so, but if you want to read the first two chapters of Spoils of War, it'll tell you. Yeah, I was going to say those uh, chapters on the, the B-1 bomber are especially, you know, interesting to me. But uh, the last thing I wanted to touch upon here was, uh, you know, I think for the past few years, we've sort of had this line thrown at us that, you know, uh, Trump was alienating our allies. And then there was the whole uh, Russiagate sort of uh, narrative where, People were going so far as to say that uh, Trump was being controlled or, or puppeteered by Putin. And I always found it very strange because, uh, first off, to me, I don't think Russia really benefited from the Trump presidency in a lot of ways. I mean, we saw what happened with the, the START Treaty negotiations. And sure. also, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately what Trump wanted was for allies to have greater military spending, as you point out in the book. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it's completely absurd. I mean, the the notion that Trump, you know, which the Democrats, maybe they persuaded themselves, I don't know, I mean, this ludicrous fantasy that Trump was really a Russian agent, which, you know, unpardonably, most of the sort of mainstream press signed on for. Uh, I mean, it was inherently ludicrous, but it was, it, you know, it had... Two, from the point of view of, uh, of the, you know, what do you want to call them, the important figures in this, including the Democrats, it had a, a double benefit. One is it sort of weakened Trump for most of his presidency and distracted him and so forth. And also, it, you know, it really helped by, you know, hate Russia, you know, making making everyone, encouraging everyone to hate Russia even more because they they in, inflicted this hateful person on us, um, did wonders for the defense budget. And it's doing wonders now in a very dangerous kind of way uh, for this present, you know, tensions over Ukraine. Um, 
I mean, the Democrats are in the act, I think, as we speak, practically, of um, passing uh, a bill to send another $500 million worth of arms to Ukraine. And, you know, the, the, I know from talking to Democratic congressmen that they, you know, that still they're still in the Russiagate mindset. You know, the Putin, uh, you know, uh, Putin, you know, Putin was uh, sponsoring Trump and Trump gave in to Russia and we're not going to do that anymore. As you say, Trump did nothing of the kind, but uh, it, it's the same strain. It's to the benefit. In the end, you know, you know, Russiagate was created for very, I think, particularly, you know, by the Clinton campaign in 2016 and then carried on with the Democrats as a sort of ill thought out or maybe not so ill thought of anyway, a political maneuver. Um, but, you know, against the backdrop of the need to amplify defense spending and, you know, international tensions uh, to the benefit of easily recognized, uh, recognizable guilty parties. And of course, on the other end of that, I, I mean, uh, although Trump himself would sort of talk about ending the forever wars, I, I'm not sure that um, Trump wanted to end our defense spending either. So you have the, mm. the defense industry covered on both sides by both parties. Absolutely. You know, and Trump on all his, you know, his the pressure which didn't start or end with him um, to get NATO countries to increase defense spending to, you know, that's a direct um, benefit to the, uh, you know, to the Lockheeds and Boeings and all the rest of this world. Well, I want to let you get going because we've gone about a half hour here. Uh, but in closing here, and, and I know uh, you're not Pollyanna-ish about this, but do you think there's anything that can stop or at least slow down uh, this insatiable uh, amoeba or this insatiable creature? It's hard to, you know, I, I can't think of any... Unfortunately, I think, I mean, short of a, I don't know, revolution, but I can't think of anything that would really, you know, stop it dead in its tracks. I do think it would help if people, and certainly, you know, people, even pe people who think this is all a bad idea, which is a lot of people, uh, took the, take more trouble to understand, you know, what's going on, why it happens. You know, as you said correctly, you know, mentioned at the beginning, that it's, you know, fundamentally that, you know, I think certainly U.S. imperialism and, you know, goals of foreign policy are excuses. And I think people should understand that, why it is, you know, we support, you know, we take an active part in the war in Yemen, why it is we're confronting Russia, you know, over Ukraine, uh, why it is we push to expand NATO. Um, and that doesn't, it won't, such understanding won't solve the problem, but I think it, it, at least people should be better equipped to understand what the problem is or why it exists. Well, I want to thank you again, Andrew Coburn, for coming on Parallax Views. Hopefully we can talk again in the future, and I hope sure. that my listeners will read your book, The Spoils of War. Thank you again. All right. Take care. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Coburn. I highly recommend checking out his book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Let me tell you, it is revelatory. Next up, we're going to be speaking with Professor Nikolai Petro on tensions between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine and NATO. And also, the need for strategic empathy 
in our foreign policy today. Before we get to that, another word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical, queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, a scholar on the subject of both Russia and the Ukraine, Nikolai Petro. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you. So if you could, could you tell my listeners about how you became involved in uh, researching and doing scholarship on Russia and the Ukraine? Well, uh, so I grew up uh, in the Russian emigration, which had three waves. I I myself was born overseas, but into that fairly large community in uh, Europe, in Germany, and went to school most of my life in Italy, and then um, came to the US for college and decided, uh, much to my parents' dismay, to stay here (laughs) and uh, become a professor. So it came from originally a a family interest, and that was for Russia itself. For Ukraine, I started to get interested when I was invited in 2008, I think, by the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences to give a series of talks there. And um, then I was invited the next year to give more lectures. And I, uh, I, I fell in love with the country and have uh, applied for a fellowship there, a Fulbright fellowship, which I got. And that uh, allowed me and my family to stay there in what turned out to be a very crucial year, 2013 and 2014. And I saw uh, the entire uh, events that unfolded there in front of my window, essentially, uh, the door of my uh, my apartment. And um, ever since then, uh, we've continued to go back and I've been trying to answer the question of why did this happen? And I, I, you know, I gave that year being like the American in Ukraine right there, the Fulbright scholar, people said, uh, you know, tell us what's happening, tell us what's happening. And I couldn't, 
I couldn't explain it because the things that were happening were so different in different parts of the country. Some were for Yanukovych, some were for the Maidan. And uh, it wasn't clear what was happening uh, at all for the longest time. I was going to say really uh, briefly here, if you could, because I, I have a lot of listeners that I think, you know, I, I think in the U.S. here, we're sometimes afflicted by having the memory of a goldfish. And we don't always think about years prior. And I think it's important to look at what happened with Russia and the Ukraine in 2013, 2014. So maybe you could give a, a brief rundown there. Sure. Uh, so there uh, was, uh, the, the, uh, Ukraine was engaged for a number of years in the process of uh, joining uh, an EU uh, association. There was a, there's a special form of association, which was a trade association. And uh, the EU was inviting Ukraine to join that association as part of a special Eastern partnership arrangement. And uh, the government of uh, then President Yanukovych uh, agreed to that in principle, but wanted to make sure that it was in Ukraine's interests to do so economically. But for the opposition to Yanukovych, uh, it was more about the symbolism of joining Ukraine, of, of Ukraine joining this uh, Eastern Partnership uh, Agreement and signing this accord at all costs. So when Yanukovych was advised by his economic advisors that this was not a good deal for Ukraine, and he delayed the process of signing it, at a famous meeting in Vilnius, that led to uh, opposition meetings that began on the Maidan Square. Maidan is just a Ukrainian uh, term taken from Turkish that means meeting place. Uh, so the, the Maidan Square in Kiev. And uh, for a long time, it was kind of like, uh, you know, just a group of young people uh, having uh, setting up tents, as they'd done in the past. Uh, it wasn't growing, it wasn't shrinking, it was just kind of lingering. But then uh, there was an attempt on, uh, in December, I, well, the end of, end of November, to uh, disperse the Maidan. And this was uh, widely reported uh, and uh, it led to violence and this galvanized the opposition, which then became larger, more structured, and took on an increasingly aggressive and violent character toward the regime. So there was then, since after, after starting in December, uh, a, a direct confrontation between what became the forces of the Maidan and uh, the government. And uh, this uh, debate then became a demand, this, this confrontation became a demand to overthrow uh, the Yanukovych government, to, to, to get rid of it. Um, and there were three political leaders uh, who represented the opposition, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, who later became mayor of Kiev, Artsenia 
Yatsenyuk, who later became the prime minister, and uh, uh, Tinyabok, who was the leader at the time of the far-right uh, Svoboda party. And uh, the three of them uh, helped to coordinate the Maidan, uh, spoke for the Maidan, although the Maidan also had its own voice, a, kind of a, a, a rad more radical street uh, voice. Um, and things really got out of hand uh, in uh, early February with shootings and violence, uh, which have not been investigated to this day. And, um, and, esc and, and culminated with a, an agreement in, Febru in February uh, 2014 to um, have a peaceful transition of power from Yanukovych to a government led by Arseniy Yatsenyuk. Yatsenyuk. And um, this was signed in the presence of uh, the foreign ministers of Poland, France, uh, a, a Russian delegate uh, who was sort of uh, an ambassador at large, Poland, France, and uh, some third country, uh, which escapes me now. Anyway, they ratified sort of this uh, uh, agreement, this transition of power. And then um, the next day, um, the Maidan stormed the parliament and uh, declared Yanukovych to be ousted. He fled or was in the process already of fleeing to Kharkov where his own supporters disavowed him then he fled to Crimea and eventually fled to Russia. So that's what we had starting in February. We had essentially uh, what split the country. Those who supported it said this was a, they now term it officially, revolution of, uh, revolution of dignity. And uh, the opponents call it a coup. And um, that divide persists largely with the Eastern Russophile portion of the country in much larger numbers seeing these events as a uh, coup. And uh, the Western and Central portions of the country uh, seeing it as a revolution of, digni of dignity. Then, on top of that, the country began to unravel. Uh, Crimea left, uh, I think in March, and uh, roughly around the same time, but as that was evolving, the same process began to take place in uh, the East, in Donbass. So the Crimean uh, secession, separation from Russia, uh, took place very quickly and bloodlessly, and uh, the Ukrainian army offered uh, no resistance. As a matter of fact, the head of the Ukrainian Navy switched to uh, the Russian side. And uh, that did not bode well for uh, the evolution uh, of this process, uh, should it spread to the rest of Eastern Ukraine, which is why I think the reaction of the new 
government in Kiev against the same efforts in um, the eastern region of Ukraine known as Donbass uh, were so harsh and uh, led to the conflict, the armed conflict that we've had there for the past eight years. Yeah, it's it's uh, always struck me as, as a very tragic situation in, in the sense of, you know, when you get past all the ways in which different uh, elements, both in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, sort of want to use this as a, a political volleyball, it, it's a tragic situation. I, I think that it would be uh, great if there was a ceasefire, but I, I talk to people from, I actually have a few listeners uh, from the Ukraine and uh, from Russia, and, you know, it, it's always hard for me to gauge what exactly to think, because I, I find that there's a lot more of diversity of thought than maybe people in the West are accustomed to thinking about when it comes to this issue. I think you're right. And uh, in addition to the diversity of perception that exists on the ground, there are three layers of conflict. And that's what I stress in my own writings, uh, that these overlap, but there is one of them that is actually the crucial layer without which the other two uh, wouldn't be such a big deal. So the three layers of the conflict are the conflict between the West and Russia over whose sphere of influence Ukraine should be in. Another conflict is between Russian elites and Ukrainian elites over what is Russia to Ukraine and what is Ukraine to Russia? Because clearly Ukraine has been defining itself more and more as an autonomous entity distinct from Russia. And this has been going on for a very long time, uh, but not something that a lot of Russian elites have paid much attention to. And this is, has itself led to, con to con conflict. And then there is the, the crucial uh, conflict between, uh, within Ukraine between uh, East and West um, over who gets to define Ukrainian identity uh, because they have different histories, different languages, different cultural affiliations. And uh, they, they, they came to be part of this country, the, the current uh, borders of Ukraine uh, at very different times. And as a result, uh, they have a hard time speaking, if you will, a common language. And th there's been a conflict ever very clearly, sharply defined since independence between uh, these two regional elites, each trying to suppress the other. And to say, no, no, this, you know, our version of Ukraine is the only legitimate one. And we would all be united and safe, et cetera, if, you know, our version of Ukraine uh, got rid of the other version. And that's a problem because we're not talking about 90% and 10%. It, it's not clear what exactly the ratio is, but uh, the, just the Russian speaking, that is say the, the group that, that prefers to speak Russian, 
is typically considered to be at least 30%, uh, could be much higher, uh, and they're regionally compact. So the only way to really get rid of them is to let them go, if they wanted to go, but they don't want to leave. They want to be considered, in Eastern Ukraine, they want to be considered loyal Ukrainians. If nationalistic elements in Ukraine would allow them to be. I also, I want to talk more about uh, your 2018 article, Are We Reading Russia Right? But before we get to that, I had listeners that wanted me to ask about this. I don't know if you actually are able to speak to it that much, but there's been a lot of talk lately and also in the past years about the uh, Ukrainian far right, and especially now that there's um, a new National Geographic documentary that came out. Uh, it's part of a series called Traffic uh, that dealt with um, the Azov Battalion. So there's people that wanted me to ask you about uh, the Ukrainian far right and the role they play in all of this. I don't know if you can comment on that briefly. I don't consider myself an expert specifically on the far right. There are uh, people who have uh, studied that and written about that a lot. My expertise uh, however, deals with an aspect of that, the intellectual aspect, because I have studied Ukrainian nationalism and nationalist ideology, uh, which is the point of, sorry, which is um, the intellectual framework for these uh, nationalist battalions. Uh, that you're talking about, volunteer, really, volunteer battalions and volunteer uh, public organizations of a nationalist orientation. Um, so in my estimation, they played a crucial role in the success of the Maidan in 2014, because without their leadership, without their military organization, without uh, the simple um, um, military hardware that was provided uh, to the, uh, the 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 Maidan uh, supporters, um, they could not have withstood the assault of the Yanukovych regime and taken the fight further back to them. And uh, I, I was just gonna could, say- uh, Let me just say one okay. more thing. Nor could uh, the far right have seized so many local governments in Western Ukraine and, and, and simply uh, uh, assumed uh, political control in that region of the country before uh, the events of February 2014. So they were, they were crucial at that stage and they derived benefits from that. So the benefits they derived were that they were given key positions of intellectual influence, head of the um, uh, Ministry of Education, head of uh, a number of, of uh, aspects, cultural aspect, the cultural domain. They began to draft laws that essentially excluded, began to systematically exclude 
uh, the use of Russian from the public sphere, from the media, from education. This has always been part of their agenda. And it's understandable, I think, that they were rewarded in this way by the Maidan government, which was always and continues to be a strange melange of pro-Western uh, groups. I, I hesitate to call them classical liberals, but I'm comfortable saying that they are certainly pro-Western, along with uh, people on the far right who are, oddly enough, uh, or perhaps not, very skeptical of Western values. They, they want a Ukraine, a racially pure Ukraine for Ukrainians. Now, um, so these two have a marriage of convenience in an effort to set, uh, to, to enforce what the Maidan labeled a civilizational choice, namely a break with Russia in order to shift toward the West. But there are limits to that shift and the limits are, are the values limits on that shift are very uh, sharply defined in the, in the movements on the nationalist far right. And, and I just wanted to ask one more thing about that. Is there, I, I think in the US, um, a lot of people don't think about how a, a lot of our far right here in this country actually has older origins. You know, you can trace a lot of stuff back to, uh, you know, John Birch Society and it's sort of uh, intellectuals like Ravillo, P. Oliver and, and whatnot. I assume that's also true um, with Ukrainian nationalism and ultranationalism, you can trace a lot of things back to um, uh, Stepan Bandera and, and others like that, correct? It goes back much further than that. We have to remember that a nationalism as an ideology underwent a significant transformation in the 20th century. Even Hans Morgenthau, who argued uh, quite correctly that nationalism was a totalitarian evil, uh, recognized that at its origins, it was essentially a romantic version of, of self-government uh, and an effort to establish the sovereignty and free freedom of choice for nations uh, as they were leaving empires. They were trying to identify who they were as distinct from sort of some sort of uh, multinational agglomeration. And by virtue of having a Hungary for Hungarians and in Austria for Austrians and a Poland for Poles, you would be more democratic because you would be restoring, you would be shifting the power from these faceless, uh, uh, cultural, culturally multicultural elites to the people, to the people themselves. In, in other words, uh, the sort of cosmopolitan elite versus the, the people. Versus narrative. the people, versus democracy as the voice of the people. And, and that was arguably um, part of a democratic transformation in Europe. But they failed. They, they in much of Eastern Europe, that, and in Ukraine, that specifically, th that effort uh, collapsed. Uh, the country was subsumed back into larger empires that were reconstituted. And in a reaction to that, uh, the original romantic ideals of nationalism were transformed into um, a more militaristic uh, version 
that uh, declared that the solution had to be one of fighting for one's independence and getting rid of physically eradicating uh, the foreign element. And we see this throughout Eastern Europe and in Ukraine. Then again, so that, that, that sort of carries us for Ukrainian nationalism through World War II, when this uh, very, uh, <laughs> you know, it's redundant to say nationalistic, but very ethno-nationalistic um, type of nationalism dominated. Well, they were on the losing side. The, the Ukrainian nationalist movement, uh, the insurgent army, uh, which was allied with uh, Hitler's Germany, uh, was, on the la uh, was on the losing side. So they switched their ideology. They, they tweaked it and became um, not less nationalistic, but became nationalistic and for democracy uh, after World War II. And um, uh, then it became, however, the, the, nevertheless, I should say, the advantages organizationally of maintaining a military type of organization, military discipline, and the ability to exercise, should the opportunity arise, the ability to exercise force in order to achieve the kind of um, uh, power, uh, should, should it be lying in the streets that, uh, and, and nationalists could seize it, uh, uh, led to the maintenance, I would say, uh, in Ukraine of a mil militaristic spirit that uh, I suppose you could argue has served them well in recent in the past decade or so because look what they got they got a country that is far more nationalistic and that has used it, Ukrainian nationalism as a rallying cry against uh, Russian aggression. And I, I want to say I appreciate your correcting me there that it, I mean it does go back further uh, than the sort of World War II period that I was referencing so. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, it's funny since you mentioned um, Hans Morgenthal. Uh, he's come up on my show a lot more lately. Uh, I would say one of the real heavyweights of uh, realism within international relations theory and thought. And uh, it's interesting because I, I know a lot of people will hear the term uh, realist and they'll think Henry Kissinger, whereas I think of someone like Morgenthal. And I was wondering if you talk about Morgenthal and maybe his influence on how you're thinking about things with hmm. regards to Russia and the Ukraine and the U.S. today. Well, I was part of a panel earlier last uh, week, I guess, uh, on strategic empathy, and I brought up toward Russia, well, toward any country, really. Uh, and uh, I brought up how I saw Morgenthal as being the father of both traditional real politique and strategic empathy toward other nations. And I think the thing to understand, and so how did I, how was I influenced by Morgenthau? Morgenthau was the dissertation advisor of my dissertation advisor. So his foremost student was Kenneth W. Thompson uh, at the University of Chicago. And uh, I was then um, uh, a student of Kenneth W. Thompson, who became my dissertation advisor. So I guess in some ways I'm a grandchild, <laughs> intellectual grandchild of Morgenthau. 
Um, but Morgenthau, I think, uh, is interesting, uh, particularly uh, how could he combine uh, realpolitik and empathy toward uh, toward enemies, toward toward the enemies of the United States. Uh, you have to understand that he is um, he was reacting to an uh, uh, a, a view of uh, an I should say a pr an approach to American foreign policy that was based on idealism. And he was concerned, um, and this led him to uh, famous, a famous critique of the Vietnam War. He was concerned that the national interest be tailored to the real interests of a country, including the United States, and not be seen as uh, a blank slate that you could write anything upon, and therefore uh, w which would, I should say, de facto lead you to endless interventions in the name of all sorts of utopian projects. I guess what we now uh, have come to understand as nation building projects, which are never ending and would sap every resource we have ever had or ever will have in the process of transforming, not just countries, but the very nature of humanity. And if that's, you know, the, the Morgenthau said that cannot be our goal. That is simply a self-destructive goal for any nation. So he said, in, in contrast to that, we need true politics, realpolitik. And true politics is understanding your limits. And in order to understand your limits, you have to be able to have a dialogue an honest dialogue with the people you disagree with. And, and true security comes not out of one side beating the other, because we can never get rid of our enemies totally. We, we live with them all the time. It's, you know, if we don't satisfy their needs this generation, we will be forced to deal with them again the next generation. So what we need to strive for in establishing security is balance, a balance of power. Uh, and um, on this point, by the way, he was opposed by Winston Churchill, who was also seen as a realist, but who in many ways um, then uh, sought dominance rather than realism, the, the kind of realism that Morgenthau talked about, which was rooted in understanding what you ought to be pushing for and what you should really avoid pushing for in your foreign policy. And I was going to say, when we talk about strategic empathy, I think it's important to talk about one thing that Morgenthal wrote about was uh, an issue that he called strategic narcissism, uh, which mm -hmm. I think he defined as a, a sort of very American tendency to view the world only in relation uh, to the United States. And I think strategic empathy would be the antidote to that. So maybe we could talk about what we mean by strategic empathy as opposed to strategic narcissism. Well, people have come up with different terms for the same, uh, for the same problem, I think. My dissertation advisor uh, looked at the core 
problem in U.S. foreign policy, a generational problem that kept repeating itself as moralism. And he said, moralism is not morality. Morality is an understanding that, first and foremost, you are sinful. And, 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 and you begin to build healthy relationships by recognizing your own sins, your own failings, and uh, the best foreign, the best political advice uh, that can be given is to is the biblical advice, biblical advice of taking the beam out of your own eye before you you know try to take out the splinter in someone else's eye. But if you don't do that and start to preach, then you are veering into the territory of moralism. And so strategic, uh, I think what people are referring to as strategic empathy nowadays is that same recognition that um, if you only see the world in terms of black and white, good and evil, and of course you define yourself as good, then it becomes very difficult to survive in the world because you're always attacking all the evil people. And the evil people will hopefully be weaker when you attack them. But how do you guarantee that? How do you guarantee, in a, particularly in an interconnected world, that they can't get back at you in ways uh, that will be especially painful for you? <clears throat> and uh, all of this can be avoided by recognizing the humanity well, literally, of all human beings, and not trying to paint them into boxes of good and, and evil. So I mentioned earlier that you wrote uh, a piece entitled, Are We Reading Russia Right? Question mark in 2018. And I guess the answer to, to that would be uh, no. Otherwise, why would we have to write a piece on that? So how are we reading Russia wrong? And why do we keep reading Russia wrong? Not sure I came up with a very good answer, but I did point to uh, scholars who have looked at this, and there have been quite a few over the over time, from <clears throat> Berkeley historian Martin Malia to French historian Guy Metton to David Fogelsong, who wrote uh, an excellent book uh, in, for Cambridge University Press on um, American perceptions of Russia over the past hundred years. The bottom line is uh, for uh, most people who have looked at this issue is we are a missionary nation. We define ourselves as having a mission to the world. And when we meet another nation that also has a sense of mission to the world, we feel we have to convert that nation to our mission or destroy it. That manifests this, destiny in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sense of uh, the fulfillment of the puritanical ideals of being a city on a hill, of being the exemplar, of being an exceptional nation. You know, Putin and Obama had a very interesting exchange of views on this. And um, 
Putin has repeatedly uh, stated that he thinks the doctrine of American exceptionalism is not harmless, that it in fact paints uh, a target on the United States and makes them much more difficult uh, to deal with as a normal nation. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. We do think of ourselves in America as exceptional. And we don't understand, as, as I think uh, Bush 45 said, you know, why, don't, why doesn't everybody in the world love us? We're so good. I mean, that, that kind of naivete seems to be quite widespread in the United States. It has to do with our peculiar history, our, our insularity, our, our isolation, our anti-intellectualism, you know, all of that. So, but we are who we are. And um, George Kennan, you know, would rant and rave about this and uh, felt that he was very much out of place uh, in, in an American society, in the American society to which he was born. Uh, you know, by giving this this advice about being, you know, uh, cautious and having a sense of historical uh, limitations and, uh, and 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 not being overly uh, uh, moralistic in your approach to other nations, one of his famous uh, final essays, uh, uh, a point he made actually repeatedly was, this is the father of containment, George Kennan. He said, when the Russians reacquire their democracy, we should be careful to leave them alone because, you know, they have to find their own way to whatever form of post-Soviet government they are comfortable with. And, and nothing will do more to uh, prevent that and to create tensions than for us to go over there and uh, tell them, how we do things and expect them to do the same as us, which was, of course, exactly what we did in the 1990s. Yeah, and Kennan, as you said, was the, the father of containment uh, during the Cold War. And, and also, I think, interestingly, later on, uh, one of the big voices to say, you know, NATO expansion may not be a good idea. Yes. As a matter of fact, I remember that period quite well because I was a younger scholar, but I was invited by one of our foremost experts at the time on Soviet foreign policy, Alvin Z. Rubinstein, to co-write his, uh, at the time, Soviet foreign policy textbook, which was in its fifth edition, and turn it into a Russian foreign policy textbook. And we talked a lot about what uh, to expect from NATO expansion. And I recall him saying how he couldn't think of a single actual Soviet expert at the time who thought that expanding NATO so rapidly uh, was a good idea. But we had, other, we had other people advocating for it, but not the community of people who are actually knowledgeable about the Soviet Union and Russia. In terms of how Putin or, or Russia may look at things like NATO, what, what can we say about that? Well, like what what is the perspective we may be missing when we're not employing a, a little bit of strategic empathy? Well, the tendency seems to be in Western media, again, to assign white hats and black hats and to say uh, NATO, 
a military alliance expanding up to the doorstep of a country that is not a member is not a threat. And you have the NATO general secretary, not the first one uh, to say so, with a, a straight face asserting that. Of course, from the perspective of the country to which this uh, very large, well-armed military alliance is expanding, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily agree. But our reaction to that disagreement is to ignore it and to simply continue expanding. This inevitably is going to lead to discomfort, eventually anger, and eventually a uh, some sort of retaliatory move. I mean, that much uh, we've been told, again, for generations by our leading diplomatic historians. And before we close out, is there anything on, you know, Russia's side that maybe they could do differently when, when um, dealing with these diplomatic relations? Is, is, there a, is there blame to go around on all sides of this? An interesting question, but what could Russia do? What could Russia have done differently except submit to the, whatever the desires or the whims, really, hard to know what the long-term desires are, of, because they diverge you know, and from country to country with respect to, to Russia. Um, but Russia essentially played along in the 1990s decided not to press the issue for two decades. It did say, look, you said you wouldn't expand. You continue to expand. We don't like this. But again, to deaf ears. So assuming that Russia is serious about its own security concerns and that it wants its security concerns to at least be addressed. You know, there's a well-known saying about how you get a donkey's attention. You get a donkey's attention by whacking it over the head or in the nose with a two by four, you know, and, and then you can sort of lead it to where, where you want it to go. But other than that, you're just not gonna get its attention. So what we're engaged in now, NATO, uh, the United States and Russia, is literally diplomatic brinksmanship. And hard to say how it'll go because each side has its own calculus of where it thinks the other side will give, will, will, will pull back. Um, and we shall see uh, which of those two calculations, which, which has the deeper, the deeper resources, the deeper bench. Um, I don't think, however, that this is in any way likely to lead to an armed conflict because there is no advantage to uh, such a conflict for Russia, neither uh, a military confrontation with uh, NATO and the West or an invasion of Ukraine. It would simply be bogging down resources and the military in a in a guerrilla war in an area you know right under Russia 
next to Russia uh, for the foreseeable future. Russia clearly has no interest in doing that. Um, but um, the rest is all parlor games. And whatever you read in the press is only half the truth. Just, I, I, I can state that with utmost confidence, having written some of these memos myself and then seen uh, why, when I was in government and then seeing uh, how it was leaked and what was reported in the Western press about them. And also, I'm just wondering, how do you think we can have a, a more robust conversation about the US, NATO, and Russia? Because I, I feel like if we criticize NATO, we're immediately often accused of being, uh, you know, I had someone say to me recently, well, you have a point, but uh, that sounds like a Kremlin talking point. And it, it, it's it's kind of bizarre to me. I mean, I, I guess uh, George Kennan, if he were alive today, he would be called a, a Kremlin stooge. And I, I think he it's certainly would. A he certainly would. <laughs> well, it's become a real problem because I don't I don't consider myself as having any allegiance to uh, of Vladimir Putin or, or Russia. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I also don't think that criticism of NATO uh, or criticism of how the U.S. deals with these things uh, immediately makes you uh, some kind of stooge for a foreign entity. I would hope that we would all have a higher allegiance than our nations an allegiance to humanity. Uh, an allegiance to the well-being of humanity and its survival, uh, and to give priority to compassion over violence. Those are my, at least, guiding principles. With respect to being in, uh, accused of having someone else's talking point, if another government or the United States government agrees with me the only thing I can do is congratulate them on their insights. That, that's the only thing I can I can say to that. I'm I'm happy when they when they see it my way. Uh, I certainly don't care what anybody else um, thinks of my opinion. I've been saying the same thing from a particular uh, philosophical and political vantage point. Uh, grounded in political realism and political philosophy since I could, you know, since college. <laughs> and that hasn't changed very much. So uh, I'm not, I'm not terribly worried about that. Um, and so, real quick, since you yeah. mentioned, uh, you know, having an allegiance ultimately to humanity, I've come across people who I think misunderstand um, the, the realist approach uh, to yeah. international relations. And as soon as you start talking about, uh, well, we live in a, a, a sort of anarchic world system of nation states, and, and these nation states are driven by national interests, people will immediately assume that, does that mean you're like some kind of, uh, you know, uh, nationalist now? And I, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's, realism for me is about working, uh, you know, in the world as it is, not necessarily as we want it to be in the future. And I was wondering if you could comment on the, the this sort of idea that we can't have a realist approach if we also want to have uh, a, an extremely humanist or even international approach, because I don't think they're necessarily in contradiction. I think Morgenthau would, would agree with you. Uh, I see what he defined as realism was, uh, again, to reiterate a point I made earlier, 
a healthy understanding of the limits of national allegiance, and not just for Americans, but for every nation. In other words, this is a continuum, not, uh, a, not separate rooms, the national interest and uh, the interest of humanity. Um, they, what we should be striving for is to identify and encourage the areas where they overlap. And the more we can find areas where they overlap, the safer, more harmonious and healthier our world will be. Well, Nikolai Petro, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. If there's anything that I didn't get to cover uh, that you hope that listeners get out of this conversation, I want to give you the sort of last word here. Well, uh, the only thing I... uh, would uh, encourage people to do, as I encourage all my students to do, is to make sure you get a wide variety of views and a wide use a wide variety of news sources. And I think if you're dealing in international affairs, that requires you to go outside of um, the Anglosphere, uh, British and uh, American news sources because you can't really understand the point of view of another country unless you really look at their media, understand their debates. And it's not as hard as people think these days. Just Google translate anything in another language and you'll, you'll understand how diverse uh, the points of view are in, in the world. And I wanna thank you again, Nikolai Petro for coming on Parallax News. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Andrew Coburn and Professor Nikolai Petro. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We have everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, and at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and... Mir, or Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing, who are doing some very important work, potentially with the environmental movement. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with jerlax views to parallax views with the way out is not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit if nothing else if we don't do it others will be doing this like right so you know we have to confront the problem but no basically basically 
I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.